Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. Um, like I said, we got some vision stuff coming up the next few weeks. We've got the book of Ecclesiastes way ahead, a month away on the horizon. And then looking in our rear view, we just wrapped up our ninth of nine ologies. Last Sunday, we had Pastor Bill Schott was here with us. Did you guys enjoy Pastor Bill? That was a real blessing. Um, he blew my mind with passages of scripture that I've read thousands of times and uh, just never saw what he led us to see by the Spirit. It was a really great teaching. You can catch that on our podcast. Now, we just wrapped up Nineologies. Now, before we started our series this summer, which was all about studying the truths of God in scripture, uh, we had our very own friend and brother in Christ, Russ Keif. He introduced our series with an, with an orientation. And so I just thought, you know, it's so fitting that Russ, he started the series with an intro. I think he uh, could come up and also give us a nice outro to our Nineologies series. Would you give it up for my good friend, Russ Keif, as he comes to bring the word this morning? What's up, Russ? So real quick, before Russ uh, shares, I just have to tell a quick story. Um, So this past Thursday was my six-year-old son Judah's birthday. And turned six. Get it? Um... (laughs) And uh, I'm on the phone with Russ in the driveway. It's the, I don't know what dads you ever do. So you come home from work, you pull a drive, you're still on the phone, and your whole family's like outside, like, what do you get? Come, come inside, okay? So that's, uh, Brittany usually has to extract me from the car every, Sunday, every day when I come home. But I'm there on the phone uh, with Russ, and Judah runs out, and uh, Judah hears that I'm talking to Russ. Hey, Russ! He goes, it's my birthday tomorrow. And that's what Judah tells everybody. And uh, Russ goes, Russ responds, he says, are you, are you getting any chest hair? That's what he said to Judah, because Judah was turning six. And Judah looked at me, and he's like, what, Dad? Okay. And so two days later, I'm with Judah. We do a quick Publix run. <laughs> and we're at the register, and Judah's just like a cute, sweet kid that everybody wants to talk to. And the, the cash register lady said, hey, you know, it's hard talking to you. And she said, hey, it's my birthday. She goes, oh, really? How old are you? He goes, six. And he goes, I'm getting chest hair. <laughs> So, anyway, I had to share that. Anyway, give it up for Russ, guys. Wow, good morning. I got chest hair at six and a half, so. Um, No, in all seriousness, uh, it's great to be back with you guys again. Um, One of the best parts about... uh, speaking in front of you guys is when An- Andrew introduces me because uh, it's one of those few times like that you feel good about yourself. He has like this like special gift that he just makes you feel good about yourself whenever you're with him. And uh, it's a great gift that a pastor has. Um, so it's great because usually pastors lack mercy, but Andrew doesn't. So, But we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be uh, uh, in verses 11 through 13. But for our reading this morning, when you guys stand up, we're actually going to read through the entire chapter um, to give you guys a little bit of uh, more context. So please stand with me, and then we can get going right away. Um, but just to give you a little quick background, uh, 1 Corinthians, um, we see 
Paul, just wrapping up Romans, and he, uh, Romans reveals how much of a theologian Paul actually is. 1 Corinthians takes a different turn where we actually see the administrator of him come out. And what he's doing through this entire uh, letter to the church of Corinth is he's straightening out different problems. And when we narrow it down to uh, chapter 13, we see a problems that they were having with gifts of the Spirit. And the majority of the problems were all wrapped up in the fact that they were missing a key ingredient, which was love. And so that's the little background context as we read through this. But uh, please uh, read with me in thought. You guys don't have to read out loud. I'm not to make you do an entire chapter out loud with me. Um, it gets really difficult really fast. Um, but the Word of God says this. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, it is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. But we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You may take your seat. Dearly Father, we, uh, we rejoice today because today is the day that you have made, and we are going to rejoice and we're going to be glad in it. Father, it's always such a blessing to wake up with the sun, with the gathering of other Christians together. And Lord, we ask that as we spend this time studying your word, studying about you, we ask that you speak to us in a way that it positively affects us. It affects us for change, that we take on more of these characteristics, that we find ourselves abiding in faith, hope, and love, that we find ourselves looking more like you. So, Lord, we ask that uh, whatever words I may have, let them fail, and your words stick out. We ask this in your name we pray. Amen. Yeah. All right. So, as Andrew said, I opened up with us with an orientation. We've now made it through the entire summer school all nine ologies are now complete, and now I am going to be giving us our commencement speech. Um, and I guarantee you that I'm not going to be any more entertaining than the ones you see um, at your children's college graduations. Um, it's not that type of thing. But taking everything that you know now, after nine ologies, taking all of them, knowing what you know now, what is next? You graduated. What's next for you? What do you do with all of this knowledge that you now have from studying theology? Anthropology, Christology, eschatology. I'm going to stop at those ones because they get really hard to say after that. 
Um, but what do you do with this huge accumulation of knowledge that you not only got each Sunday, that you, if you went on Thursday nights, you got even more knowledge? What do you do? What's the true test that you understand and know what you've been taught? You have all this knowledge. What do you do with it? Well, that's when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 13. And we're going to start with the very first two verses, 11 and 12, and read with me. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, knowing um, the things that I know from being a father for so long, um, it's been about three years, one of the things I know is that my kid can only do, understand, and know so much. He's limited. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it can be frustrating as a parent sometimes when you're explaining something and they're just, yeah, I understand, I understand. And then they really have no idea what you're talking about or what you're doing. And I know that doesn't change when they turn into teenagers, but I'm excited for the day that he can start doing things um, by himself, especially wiping. Um, that's one of the things that I'm like <laughs> extremely excited about. Um, but there's a natural development that happens as my sons go from birth to one years old, to two years old, and three years old, to 16, to 17, to 18, to 30, till, till they outlive me. There's a natural development that happens. There's a maturing process. There's a time where they put away those childish things, and they pick up maturity. You see, they're taught things. They know things. And the things that they know, they're now able to put away the childish things. Now, let me tell you something. There are many things that I do today that in five years from now, I'm going to look at myself and say, wow, I am so immature. There are many things that I can look at now, things that I did yesterday that I say, you know what, I was really immature. And so this maturity thing is a continual growth, but with all the knowledge that I am obtaining, I realize that I have to put away childish things. I have to find myself constantly maturing. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, there's a correct way to know theology, there's a mature way to do it, but there's also an immature way to do theology and understand theology. We have to find ourselves looking for the correct way to be mature in the theology we have. And that's really what we're going to be looking at is the, the mature way, how to do this theology that we now have after over nine weeks of studying about it. We're going to understand that. And to go a little bit deeper, what he says for in verse 12, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. You see, we see in a mirror dimly. Back then, their mirrors, it wasn't, I think, until like the 14th century, don't quote me, don't look it up, I'm not a historian major, but until they actually like advanced their technology in mirrors. So what they actually used to do was take steel, they would buff it, they would shine it, they would polish it, or bronze, or whatever type of material they could have, and they would buff it and shine it, and then you would look at yourself in a mirror. That's what they called a mirror, just really shined metal. Um, but as you could possibly you know, gather, um, is that the great details were completely missing because there's only so much you can see and, there's, and it's distorted. Um, so the idea here is that we can only see in a mirror dimly. Um, it's an inadequate mirror. We can see partly, but we can't see clearly. And that's the same thing with this theology. There's only so much that we can understand and comprehend as a human being. What do I mean by that? You see, we've been giving the Holy Spirit. We've been given the word. And that's where we understand and get to know theology. 
um, but we are still limited in our humanity um, to the revelation of God's fullest extent. Now, what the heck does that mean, Russ? Um, it means that until we see God, Jesus, face to face, we won't truly understand everything that we've learned here on earth and throughout our nineologies. When we get to see him face to face, there will be a realization. There'll be that aha moment. Now, recently I got very lucky that um, my boss wanted me to go on a business trip with them and uh, learn some of the things that they get to do. And so we're going to throw an image up here. And this is what I got to do for my business trip, possibly the coolest business trip I've ever had in my entire life. Um, but does anybody in here scuba dive? Okay, so there's a good amount of you guys. Um, I just learned how to scuba dive. They told me, oh yeah, you're gonna be scuba diving on your trip, you need to go figure out how to get certified. So they threw me in like this nasty lake pond um, right outside Bass Pro Shops. You can't even see your hand in front of you. That's where they trained me. And before I went, all the people that I was going with was like, oh yeah, we're gonna be diving this wreck. And they showed me this picture and it's, it's called the, the Kitty Wake. And uh, it's a massive boat, it's over 200 feet long. And um, it's, it's pretty awesome. So I'm sitting there looking at this picture after just getting out of like a pond that you can't see your hand. And I'm like, oh, so that's what I'm gonna get to do um, is go do that. And I was like, that's awesome. That picture is unbelievable. But when I actually showed up, dove down and saw that boat face to face, it was something completely different. You know, the picture can only do so much justice. You guys have heard that saying before, the picture doesn't do justice. Well, that's the idea that we have of seeing Christ face to face. We can take all this theology and we can know it, but it turns into something completely different when we see him face to face. You see, what you don't grasp here is how actually clear this water is. Um, I do a lot of free diving and spearfishing, and so I have my entire life growing up since I was like 12 years old. And, uh, and I grew up in New Jersey, so the water's not as clear as here in Florida, but I lived in Florida, I spearfish here, I lived in the Bahamas, and there's a lot clearer water, but it does not uh, compare to the clarity of the Cayman Islands. And it absolutely blew my mind. The other cool thing that I never got to grasp by looking at this picture is I actually swam through these compartments and into the boat. And while I was in there, I didn't have a flashlight, so I was like, oh, man, this is going to be freaky. But all the holes have rays of sunlight going in. And it was like one of the, like, the most beautiful things that you could possibly see. You're in this dark chamber, locked in a room, and there's rays of sunlight. Also, the water there is ridiculously warm. Like, no wetsuit, nothing. You don't have to worry about anything. It's like you get in, you're taking a bath, so it's like already relaxing. So there's all these different things that I couldn't capture by myself by looking at the picture that they showed me. It wasn't until they, I actually got there that my mind was absolutely blown. You see, I can feel the water. I have the fish swirling around me while I'm down there. We are feeding, hand feeding fish down there. This picture doesn't even show fish, but the entire wreck is covered um, in fish. Um, we have the sunlight coming in. The vivid colors that you obviously can't see in this photo were absolutely beautiful. The entire coral reef on the backside of it is absolutely gorgeous, but I didn't know that just looking at the picture, as you guys may know, and I am probably doing a terrible job of doing it justice by explaining it here. It's not until you see it face to face than you actually realize. Now, here is the idea. Knowledge is only completed by experience. So I only can gain so much knowledge by looking at this picture, but until I actually swim through the boat, until I swim around the boat, until I see and touch and 
feel the water around me and know how deep I am and feel the weight of everything on me do I actually understand. So the point is that knowledge can only be completed by experience. We have been going through the last nine weeks and we've been gaining all of this knowledge, but all of this knowledge does nothing for us if we don't put it to action. You see, that's the difference between the maturity and the immaturity of theology. Immature theology takes it and they let lets it puff you up. Oh yeah, look at all I know. Mature theology now says, how do I apply this to my life and live it? And once I apply it to my life and live it, what is it going to produce inside of me? Because if we are applying all this theology, everything that we now know, it is supposedly going to produce in us faith, hope, and love. These are the three main things that the gospel uh, teaches us that we should all have. Now, there's a great uh, example. There's a 17th century author. We'll throw it up here, a quote that he had. Um, I believe his name was Brother Lawrence. Um, He said this, Many things are possible for the person who has hope. Even more is possible for the person who has faith. And still more is possible for the person who knows how to love. But everything is possible for the person who practices all three virtues. What we're going to be looking at is all three virtues individually and how they relate to one another. Everything is possible for the person who practices all three virtues. You see, knowledge that you now have needs to be translated and known into an experience that you're now living out so that you may be able to do everything. But we must first pursue these three things. Now, that leads us into verse 13, which is going to be our main verse that we're going to stick at for the rest of the study. And it reads this, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The very first one that we're going to look at, but before we look at it, we have to look at the beginning where it says, Now abide. We have to understand what it means to abide. You see, it means to make yourself present. This very single moment, not only in this exact moment, I want you to stay here. I want you to abide here. I want you to live here. I want you to make a home for the rest of your Christianity in these three things. This is not just something that you decide, oh yeah, I want to put on for a little bit. This is something that you put on and it never leaves. It becomes your skin. Except I think your skin, it flakes away. That's how we get dust. So maybe skin's not a good thing, but it becomes who you are And because it becomes who you are, you're going to live in it. You're going to live with it. You're never going to let it depart. So the second that you become a Christian, you take everything that you know, and you let these three things become who you are. Now, faith, hope, and love, these three things. The amazing thing about this is all throughout the New Testament, you can find these three words together. You find them together over eight times in the New Testament. Um, you see it in 1 Thessalonians, you see it in Galatians chapter 5, you see it in 1 Peter chapter 1, you see it in Colossians chapter 1, you see it in 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm not going to keep on going. But you see these words together for a reason. They go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. And you have to understand that if you can't have one without the other, you have to know what each individual one of these aspects is. You have to know what faith is. You have to know what hope is. You have to know what love is. That's part of all the theology that we learned. All the theology relates back once applied to these three aspects. So now abide. The first one that we're going to abide in 
is faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. If you guys want to go with me um, there, um, we also have it on the slide for you. But it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith. You see, eyesight is the sense that gives us evidence in the material world that we live in. Let's say that again. Eyesight is the sense of the six senses that gives us evidence of the material word, world we live in. So once you see something, you now have evidence because why you've seen it, you know it. You saw a person, you, you, you can look at it and say, yeah, that exists, that does exist. But faith, on the other hand, is the sense that gives us evidence of the invisible spiritual world. Completely different scent, sense of sense. Yeah, sense. Uh, sense. It's a completely different sense that we have. You see, faith gives us evidence of the invisible, untangible world. Our spiritual world. That's what faith does. You see, um, David Guzik explains it this way. He says, faith is not a bare belief or an intellectual understanding. It is a willingness to trust in, to re rely on, and to cling to. I'm going to say those things again. He says, it is the willingness to trust in, to re rely on, and to cling to. These are the things that we ourselves uh, tend to believe in. Now, one of the, the amazing things that my wife has done is uh, train my children not to be naked in front of everybody. Um, it is funny when they run through the house and everybody is going around, but running around naked, it's always funny to see a, a naked kid running around. But because we live in such a dark world now, there's only so much that we want people to see, and, uh, or as people should be seeing. Um, but one of the things is my son has got ingrained in him now that the only people that can take care of him when he goes to the bathroom or to help him is my wife or myself. Um, we didn't think about this when we were teaching these things. Like, we should have thought, oh, yeah, we should train other people as well so he's comfortable with certain people. Um, so we were just on vacation, my wife and I. Um, so all my, all my stories are going to stem from my vacation. Um, so you guys, are, you guys get to live, relive my vacation with me, as I tell you. Um, but my wife and I decided to go out with my cousins one day. All the young people went out, and uh, we went out to go do an event. And that leaves my son home with my dad, and uh, it was, to give you a little further background, there was 26 or seven of us all in one house, like my entire family, my cousins, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, we were all living in one house. Um, so all the young kids left, and we left our kids with my parents, and, um, and uh, man, they, they don't have kids anymore. Right? I'm sure the grandparents understand, yeah, they're fun to spoil, but then after a little bit, it's like, okay, you guys can have them back. Um, <laughs> But one of the things was my dad was playing with my son. He said I had to go to the bathroom. So my dad walked him up, up the stairs into the house, and my son runs into the bathroom and says, no, 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 I do it by myself. You know, he's three years old. He can do everything by himself. So he goes in there, um, goes to the bathroom, and then uh, my dad's sitting outside the door for about five minutes. And he's like, hey, Ben, everything okay? Um, Ben's just like, yeah, yeah. Um, so my dad sits out there for like another five minutes. You know, he's still, still in the bathroom. My dad's hey, you okay? Um, he goes to open the door to see, you know, my son had locked the door, okay? He had locked the door. He had locked himself inside the bathroom, and so he's screaming, I want mommy and daddy to clean me, you know? Not you, grandpa, not you. And so um, we're out, 
we didn't have our phones on us um, for, the, for this part of the trip. And so now half hour's gone by. And my dad's like, uh, he's picked the lock and he opened the door and my son freaked out. No one can see me naked. You know, slams the door again and locks it. And so now my dad's like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm just going to leave him in the bathroom. And so my dad just left him in the bathroom and went out and watched TV. And, you know, every so often my dad would go check on him. Hey, you good? And he's singing songs and playing, you know. And so my dad's like, oh, okay, you know, that's great. You know, that's great. My son refused to come out of the bathroom until my wife got home. So this, guy, this kid has been, God bless his heart, uh, he's been playing in the bathroom for like an hour. And we, you know, we get the text message after a half hour, yeah, you know, Ben's locked himself in the bathroom, he won't come out, he doesn't let anybody clean him, you know, and so it's not until we get home that we're able to take care of him. But the idea here is that Ben had faith that we were going to come and help him. It was drilled inside of him. And let me tell you something, to sit in a bathroom for an hour as a kid with no toys or nothing locked in there, that is some sort of faith. You see, (laughs) he believed that we were going to come. You know, he had a willingness and he trusted in his parents. He relied on us. He relied on his parents. And he clung only to us with no matter who else asked, whether it be my other cousins or my other aunts or another woman or anybody in the house, he refused to let anybody in because he had faith that we were going to come and help him. That's the type of faith that we should have. We should believe in something so much so that we are not rocked, that we are not moved by anything, that we remain steadfast in this. You see, the first part about faith that I really want you guys to understand is that faith is indispensable as a Christian. You can't do away with it. It's something that you have to have, and it's something that is a necessity. You see, Hebrews 11.6 says it's impossible to please God without faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says that we're saved by grace through faith. You guys starting to see how important faith actually is? You see, in Romans chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're instructed to live by faith and walk by faith. Faith is extremely important. All this theology, all the things that we've learned should help build our faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the more that you hear the word of God, the more that you understand the word of God, the more faith it should produce in you. If I kept on training Ben, I could probably get him to stay in the bathroom for four hours. And then from there, I can probably get him sitting there for a whole 24 hours. And then we don't need babysitters. We can just go out and just leave him in the bathroom. <laughs> but faith is indispensable to us. It's a necessity. It's something that we have to have. You see, it's not just that. Faith is not just about believing. We learned when we studied the book of James that our faith must have action. You see, it involves believing and acting upon the belief that we have. We have to take what we believe and actually put it to action. It's Hebrews chapter 11. It's a beautiful whole entire chapter that I would encourage you guys to study. We don't have time to study. We we don't even have time to study even just like a small aspect of faith, small aspect of hope, small aspect of love. We're barely even scratching the surface. But this chapter, if you really want to understand faith, this is a beautiful chapter where it walks you through the entire hall of faith of all these different people. What I'm going to do briefly is just going to show you the action steps. 
starts in verse 1, but we're going to go to verse 4, and it says, By faith Abel offered a more accepting sacrifice. He took his faith, and what did he do? He offered something. He put it to action. You see, it's not just, it's not just Abel. It says, By faith Enoch was taken away. By faith Noah, being divinely warned, by faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, he, Abraham dwelt in the land. By faith, Sarah herself also. <coughs> Excuse me. By faith, Abraham again. By faith, Isaac blessed. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses again. By faith, he forsook Egypt. By faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish. Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jebethath and also David and Samuel and the prophets. They did something by faith. Every single one of them took their faith, put it to action, and now they get to be in the hall of faith. It's absolutely, truly amazing to me that they all took their faith and actually put it into action. You see, you have been given faith. Every single person in this room has been given a measure of faith. What do we do with it? Do we squash it? Do we be a terrible theologian and just use it to, to, to um, puff us up? Or do we actually use it to put to action? Do we actually carry out our faith just like these people? And the amazing thing is when you study each and every single one of these names that I, that I showed you, the stories that came along with it were absolutely amazing. You see, God wants to bless your steps of faith. He wants to show you how great of things can happen when you actually take steps of faith, when you carry out faith. You see, it's not just those names, but in verses 39 through 40, at the end of that very chapter where it ends, it reads this, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. You see, they carried out all this faith and did not receive the promise. How much more so should we be walking in our faith and carrying out because we have received the promise of the Holy Spirit? Amen? Isn't that amazing? We should have so much more, a greater faith, because we have a Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us that we can actually take action to, a promise that they did not get to have, but they still did it in faith. They were still steadfast. They were still continued to move forward. You see, they were steadfast without even receiving the promise of the Messiah. We should be steadfast because we have it sealed inside of us. Well, it's not just that faith is indispensable to us. It's not just that faith is more than believing. You see, also, faith is taking God at his word. It's believing what he said is true. See, if you have substance, um, or if you've had substance before you, so if you have something before you, you can touch it, you can see it, you can feel it, um, faith is not needed because it's right there before you. You can understand it, you can touch it, you can see it. There is no faith needed if there is substance. But listen... If there is not substance, that requires faith. You see, faith is needed for the things that you cannot see, for the things that you cannot touch. So what does that leave us with? 
if you look at the different things that we cannot touch and that we cannot see that we must have faith in, think about this. Salvation. We see it in Romans chapter 10. The eternal security that we see in John chapter 10. Heaven that we see in John chapter 14. Hell that we see in Luke, not just in these one little parts of Scripture, but we see it all throughout Scripture. All these things that we cannot see, we cannot feel, but we must have faith in these things. Salvation, eternity, heaven, hell. My question is to you is, how are you personally carrying out your faith given all of the knowledge that you now have over the past nine weeks? You see, when was the last time that you decided not to live your life on cruise control, on reliance of your own abilities, your own strengths, your own money, whatever it may be, when was the last time that you stepped out of your comfort zone, turned off cruise control, and actually took a step of faith? I only asked you guys that question because as I was studying faith, I realized that I don't do too much of that stepping out. I realized that I don't find myself stepping out of my comfort zone. For me, it's so much easier just to put everything on cruise control and just live life with my own personal things. If I have a job that's paying my bills right now, thank God, and I'm going to live off of that as much as I can. But should I be praying and seeking God for different things? Take away all of my resources, and I'm going to find myself praying more. Take away everything that I have. I'm going to find myself wanting to take steps of faith because I need to take steps of faith. But it's not just in a time of need that we need to take steps of faith. We have to find ourselves applying the knowledge that we constantly have, adding to our faith, and taking steps of faith. That's something that should be happening as a Christian every single day. You see... I'm not saying take a foolish act of faith where you just go and quit your job. Um, I'm not saying that if you have strep throat that you say, nope, I don't need to go to the doctor. I don't need medicine um, because I have faith that God's going to uh, heal me. I'm not saying that on your way home from church today that you close your eyes and take your hands off the steering wheel (laughs) and say, I got faith that God's going to get me home. See, that is foolishness, not faith. Um, What I am asking you is Find yourself believing in something and taking a step towards that in a godly way. You see, when was the last time you found yourself volunteering for something at church? Or maybe it's not even at church. Maybe when was the last time you found yourself helping a neighbor, helping a random person? When was the last time that you tithed? When was the last time that you took your time and your money and you actually did something because of your faith? When was the time that you devoted more than your usual resources to something else for a godly cause? When was the last time that you took a step of faith outside of your comfort zone? You see, it's one thing to have faith, because faith is going to be the one thing that continues to move us forward. But in order to continue to move forward, we must hold on to something that pushes us. That's where the second part of our study comes in. And it's hope. See, it's hope. I'm going to flip back in my Bible. I'm sitting here staring at Hebrews chapter 11 thinking, oh, why is that not 1 Corinthians? Um, Verse 13, it says, now abide faith, hope. It's Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at hope in this. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. And it says, for we were saved in this hope, but this hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Excuse me. Hope, when you finally see something, it now becomes a uh, rational reality. So when you actually see something and you find it, it becomes a rational reality, that means that there is no longer a need for hope. Absolutely nothing need for hope. So why are you trying to hope for something that you already know? Because you see it, you touch it, it's tangible. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, hope is one of those things that our society has changed the meaning from what it was in the context that we'll be looking at it. But hope is defined as a confident expectation. It's a little bit different than what we typically use today. We typically use hope today as a positive uh, skepticism. So we use hope as like, maybe. Um, I hope this sermon Russ has runs very short. Um, Luckily, Andrew is very heavy on announcements this morning, so we're getting there. Um, But we have this idea of hope. The Bible looks at it completely differently. If it is a confident expectation, the thing that we have to understand is that the Bible is rooted in the finished work and promises of God. So it's rooted in the finished work and the promises of God. So we can be assured of our hope in these things. You see, the funniest thing was, I'm telling you, you guys are going to relive my whole vacation with me. So we have 27 people in my family all wrapped up. And my family is like very dysfunctional. Like I'm like a mess. My family's a mess. My kids are a mess. Everything's a mess. But I was making breakfast for my boys one morning. And um, my wife and cousins, they decided, oh, we got to go to the store to pick some things up. So, you know, they leave. And it's like 10 minutes, 15 minutes later. My wife comes running up the stairs into the house and goes to the kitchen. I'm like, I thought you guys left. She's like, Russ, we need you outside. I was like, oh, my gosh. What could they possibly need from me outside? So I go outside, and they had taken my grandfather's car. And it was a long driveway that was very skinny, and on either side of the driveway was sand. And so my cousin's backing up the car, and she's like, oh, this is too hard to back down this narrow driveway. Let me just cut into the sand, and then I'll be able to turn around and get out. She cuts into the softest sand that I've ever felt in my hands in the entire life. The car sinks completely down all the way up to the wheel well. And of course, they don't know what to do. So what do they do? They hit the gas. So what are they doing now? They're digging themselves deeper and deeper and deeper. So they come in. And I don't know why they chose you know, to get me of all people. I'm not a mechanic. I'm not like a master in towing cars out of sand or coming up with solutions. But they placed their hope in me. And they whispered. They made sure to whisper so that my grandfather didn't find out that his car is to the door in sand and stuck. So they came to me, oh, yeah, we have a confident expectation that Russ is going to be able to get this car out there. So I went and got my other guy cousin because it was all girls in the car. And and I don't know why my insurance is so expensive as a man um, versus, I guess, the women's in the state of Florida. (laughs) But... My cousin and I sit there for about 30 minutes, and we dig out all of the tires. 
And so we've dug like, like halfway to China and the entire car is cleared underneath the car and it feels like hard sand. So what I do, I, I, you know, I'm a genius. Like I become MacGyver in like no time. And so we find all these pieces of wood and we're breaking the wood and we're sticking it behind the wheels, in front of the wheels, like making like a driveway out of wood. And we find these big pieces of cement and then we jam that underneath the back wheels and you know, then I get in the car and I hit the gas and the tires keep on spinning. And so now it's like, okay, you know, my cousin's got a truck. We can, you know, tow this thing out. And still their, their hope is still in me. Like, Russ, you can do this. Like, we have all faith and hope in you that you can conquer this. So we tie, I tie the, the, um, the, their hitch to a strap to the car. Um, I thought the car was left in neutral. It was completely off. And we go to pull the car out completely in park and the car completely off. You know, the strap breaks, shoots, almost kills us. Um, <laughs> The best part is, is that we're in Alabama, and so the people in the house next to us are sitting there like on their porch enjoying their coffee, laughing. <laughs> you know, what are these city folks doing? And they finally come over and they're like, oh yeah, you know, the car has to be in reverse, someone has to be in the car, and you know, driving it out as, you know, okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, the girls have given up all hope once the strap broke. They've called AAA, and they're like, AAA is going to deal with this, you know, we've lost all hope in us. Guess what? Me and the two rednecks next door, we got that, we got that car out of the sand before AAA got there. And my grandfather still does not know to this day that we destroyed his car. But the idea of hope is that this is a confident expectation. You see, a confident expectation doesn't change its perspective halfway through something. A confident expectation follows it out all the way to the very end. They don't call AAA halfway through. You see, a confident expectation understands and knows something, and they say, this is going to happen. There is no doubt, there's no shadow of a doubt in my mind that this isn't going to happen, because I guarantee you it's going to happen. And that's the type of hope that we should have. Now, the question is, what's the difference between hope and faith? You see, faith believes that God can do something. Hope believes that God will do something. You see, it's one thing for us to believe that God's going to meet every one of our needs. It's another thing to know that he's going to meet every one of our needs. Amen? You see, hope is what sustains us. It's what keeps us going when we take that step of faith. Hope is the thing that continues through our darkest experiences. It's what gets us out. And I love the book of Psalms. And we're going to look at Psalm chapter 42, verse 11 on on, uh, the screen right now. It says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Has anybody ever felt downcast? Has everyone ever felt like, oh, man, I'm depressed. This is absolutely terrible. I feel hopeless. I have nothing. Um, I have. Um, It's been at a myriad of different times and seasons in my life. Um, but I realized that all those things were tied to a specific circumstance that I was walking through at that time. You see, our circumstances have a tendency to get us down. They have a tendency to get us discouraged. They have a tendency to make us depressed. But all that really means is that we are lacking our hope. You see, David finds himself constantly downcast constantly uh, depressed and discouraged. But what does he say? He says, put your hope in God. This is 
a man that had to run for his life in the wilderness while someone was out trying to kill him. And he's living from cave to cave, uh, never knowing when his day might be that they actually find him and kill him. You know, he went through trial after trial, but yet what does he say? He says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He had a hope. He had a confident expectation that God was going to deliver him from whatever he was going through. That's what we need. So when you take that step of faith and it doesn't automatically happen the way that you were hoping and intending it to happen, you have a hope to go back on. You have a confident expectation that, yes, God is going to get me through this. So what are the things that we should be hoping for? You see, we should be hoping for the future. We should have an anticipation of the good ending of Christ's return or the day that we get to see him face to face. You see, we should hope in things that we do not see. Because if it is something that we see, that means that it's going to be temporal. But if it's something that we do not see, it's going to be eternal. We say, Russ, what are the things that I need to hope in that I can't see? See, when you read the Bible, there's over 3,000 promises that God gives his people. Over 3,000 different promises that we can use as our hope, as our confident expectation, because God is going to deliver on every single one of his promises. It's Exodus chapter 14. It says that God will fight for me. It's Isaiah chapter 40. He gives us the strength when we are weary. It's James chapter 1. He gives us wisdom when we ask for it. It's 1 John chapter 1. He will forgive us when we confess and humble ourselves. It's Jeremiah that he has a plans for us to, to prosper. It's John chapter 3 where we see that we have eternal life. It's not just faith, hope, but the final one that we have to look at is love. Of these three, it's Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, and it reads, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. The great commandment that Jesus delivers up to us. Love the Lord with every single ounce of energy that we have. And then number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Now that does not mean that we must first love ourselves before we can love anyone else. That's how I used to say, oh, if I don't love myself, I don't have to love anybody else. No, that's not what it means. What it means is that you need to take uh, this, the same way that you take care of yourself is the same way that you need to take care of the ones that are around you. You need to have a concern for the interest of others. And here's the thought. You need to have this concern not just for the sake of position. You need to have this concern not because you're looking at it through the eyes of, how does this benefit me? You need to have it because we are told to have it. We need to love because it is a commandment, the great commandment that Jesus gives us. You see, unconditional love does not take a positional uh, bias. It just doesn't. Jesus did not come to live his life for himself. He came to live his life for us because he loved us. You see, love can get really twisted nowadays. 
And this type of love that we're going to learn about is a hard type of love. But if you look at how Hollywood has twisted love, um, Hollywood makes it like, you know, a passionate bedroom scene is now making love. Um, you look at it as love at first sight. Oh, my gosh. I just had to, I'm just love, 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 love. <laughs> On our way home from our trip, talking about wiping my son. He had a blowout in the car, and we're 12 hours away from our house, only to realize that we didn't have any wipes in the car. So we drive to Walmart and uh, stop at Walmart. I run in. I buy wipes. We get them all cleaned up in the parking lot, and then now we're you know, um, getting ready to leave. And so we left the parking lot, and I left with wipes and a new puppy. And... Uh, <laughs> And it was like, love at first sight. We're driving out of the parking lot, and there is a huge lifted truck from, like, 1980 that's, like, falling apart with monster tires and a sketchy guy holding a sign that says, free puppies. <laughs> it's, like, 110 degrees in Alabama. And these guys are sitting out there with the sign that says, you know, free puppies. And so my wife goes, oh, you know, can I get out and look? And, you know, we went back and forth. And um, next thing you know, she's coming back with the puppy. We're driving home with the puppy because it's love at first sight. It gave her this feeling. It's a little puppy. Oh, it was like 10 weeks old, you know, a little tiny uh, black lab. Um, thank God for the Rogans who removed it off of our hands because we have too much at home to begin with. Um, but... Love at first sight. Absolutely, that's what we look at. But in reality, it's not love at first sight. True love is demonstrated by reaching out a helping hand to a person that is in need. That's what love is. It's reaching out a helping hand to the one that is in need. And if you do not have this, you do not have true Christianity. You see, he doesn't just leave it with love. He says, the greatest of these is love. You see, it's the greatest because it's the one thing that will continue once we see God face to face. You see, when we're in heaven, faith and hope will have fulfilled their purpose. They will no longer be needed. Why? Because we don't need faith when we see him face to face. We won't need hope of the second coming of Christ because we'll be able to see him face to face. You see, we will always love the Lord and each other, and continue to grow in that love when we're in heaven. Love remains. Another reason why love is the greatest is that love is an attribute of God. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Plain and simple, God is love. It's an attribute of who he is. You see, faith and hope are not part of God's character, and they're not part of who he is. Well, why? Because God does not need faith because he does not need to trust in anything aside from himself. He does not need hope because he knows all things, and he is in complete control of all things. So there's nothing for him to hope in. Love is the attribute of God. Finally, about why love is greater, is that love encompasses the other two. When we first opened up, when we were reading through the chapter, we saw that love believes all things, so there's no need for faith. Love hopes all things, so there is no need for hope. You see, love is the greatest because it is the best form that we can show each other. 
It's the greatest of the two because it encompasses everything. It is the greatest of the three because it is who God is. We need to take all the theology that we've been given and understand who God is and become like him, and God is love. See, as we come to an end, it's John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, and it reads, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. This is going to be the last verse that we look at, and I'm going to have the worship team come up. But it says that you love one another as I have loved you. We have to look at the context in which Jesus is saying this. He's in the upper room um, with his disciples and a few others, and he gives this command that you must love one another as I have loved you. You see, we are not set out to compare ourselves to one another. We are not set out to argue with one another, but according to the measure and the quality of his love. So it has nothing to do with our fighting with one another, our bickering, our arguing, whatever it may be. It has everything to do with how we love one another. See, Jesus takes it to a, another level, and it says greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You see, his love is complete, and it surpasses all greatness because he decided to lay down his life for us. You see, when one gives their life, they've given everything that they have. And that's what our Father did for us. He sent his Son to live a perfect life, to not be deserving of death, whatsoever. But yet he decides to take on all the weight of our sin and die for us and fulfill the very thing that he is telling his disciples to do so that we in ourselves might be forgiven through the washing of his perfect blood so that we could have eternity with our Father. Isn't that not absolutely amazing? You see, we put our faith in a man that did that for us. We put our hope in a man that did that for us. We strive to love like the man that did that for us. Amen? Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.